Hey, podcast listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode. I am your space science podcast host from the East Coast, Alex G. Orfanos. We're back for another one, a People of Science interview. This is a mix of women in STEM, it's 3D printing in space, it's entrepreneurship. It's a really great conversation. I'm so happy that I get to meet, I'm blessed that I get to meet all these interesting people and how... You know, in the early days, I just thought, I just thought people around me thought I was crazy, which I think they still do. But you know, just the 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 nicheness, the, the of of what I was into, three D printing, space, rockets. You know, it, it's super popular now, but it was not when I was getting into it. And it just goes to show you that there's so much more for us to learn. And whatever you don't have to, you don't believe everything you think. Is is the lesson we're going with here? But I'm I'm rambling. I'm honored to talk with Madison Fian today on People of Science. We get to learn about her STEM origin story and about her company she founded, Space Copy, and Moon Trades that she's doing right now. So, a lunar technologist, entrepreneur, uh, who is in the space tech world, and I don't want to spoil it, but she's also worked and continues to work with NASA. Uh, but we'll let her tell that part of the story in just a second. Really fun episode. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to follow us on social media, Today in Space Pod on Instagram and Twitter, Today in Space on TikTok, and Today in Space Podcast page on Facebook. Check us out. Email us, todayinspacepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about the episode. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, any people you'd like us to talk to. We're looking to talk to more people this year in 2024. If you're interested in 3D printing and want to see what we're doing on a daily basis in our lab, go to AG3D Printing on Instagram or our website, ag3d-printing.com. If you have anything you want to 3D print, reach out to us. We'll help you out. Free quotes, no problem there. Happy to do it and get you guys going. And, of course, we also have – we don't talk about this a lot, but we have a Spotify playlist that's available for free that we add to all the time. It's all songs that have something to do with space or science or this podcast, right? But it's a really, really listenable playlist. It's something I put on to get myself hyped whenever I'm getting ready or gathering ideas for this podcast. And I also throw it out when I'm working out or if I just need something to get me pumped up. It's a really good playlist. If you have anything that you'd like to add, email us or hit us up on social media, and we'd love to uh, keep building this playlist. But check that out. It's called The Space Mix. Check that out on Spotify. But that's it. I've talked enough. Please enjoy our episode with our guest, Madison Vian. Welcome, everybody, to Today in Space, the All Things Science podcast. I'm your Space Science Podcast host from the East Coast, Alex Giorfanos, and we're here for another episode of People of Science, where we learn about the humans behind the science. Uh, and I remember when I was looking into STEM and there wasn't a lot of jobs on the market at that time, you know, I was always trying to figure out, well, what job would I like? I always would have loved to have known more people. And so that's what this podcast is a gift from me to you, is going out there, finding people who are working in the industry and sharing why they were passionate about it and what they're doing today. Today, we have our guest, Madison Fian, the founder of Space Copy, and we're going to learn a little bit more about her. Madison, thank you for joining us on People of Science. 
Uh, hello, Alex. Thank you so much for hosting me. Pleasure to be here. Um, I've been told that my journey in space is both interesting and unconventional. And Perfect. I like to think, hey, there's no one size fits all narrative when it comes to science, especially as an entrepreneur. So happy to be here. Awesome. So let's let's start with a little bit about you. Tell the folks about who you are, kind of a little bit about your background and what you're doing with Space Copy. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a background in commerce, actually, uh, business technology management, making the transition to international business later in 2024. Um, have a background in entrepreneurship and innovation from Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. So I had some really great acumen on the business side of things that helped me kind of power through into STEM. Uh, science has always been kind of my passion. Ever since being a kid, I was always interested in space, uh, always interested in 3D printing, and that's kind of where the inspiration for space copy came from. So um, let's get some baseline facts down packed here from the beginning. Please. I am the founder of and heading up an incredible international startup called Space Copy Inc. Uh, we're based in the United States and Canada, and we are working to create additive manufacturing devices that use what's called a novel selective laser melting process mm. that allows you to convert lunar regolith or moon soil into a feedstock that is capable of printing various different kinds of supplies and infrastructure for those lunar missions. Um, we've been in business since 2022 mm. and gained a lot of interest from, you know, various stakeholders within the industry, government, private academia. Now that our traction as a startup is starting to solidify, we are embarking on our research and development phase and looking to begin prototyping and bidding on some federal grants in 2024. So we're super excited. Awesome. Uh, so to, to say it another way, you're, you're, company is working on using the soil from, say, the moon, Mars, any other body, turning that into something that you can then build structures on the surface for humans and whatever else we need to do. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. And there's also an earth use case too. So say, for example, you're out in the middle of the desert or the Arctic, you're in a remote extreme environment, and you don't have access to standard infrastructure. Our 3D printers, of course, you can take them out to those remote areas, create that supplies and infrastructure stuff that you need. Um, if something breaks down on a machine, you can create the repair part in situ using the actual soil or sand or whatever it is that you have nearby. And that's going to completely transform both the space industry, defense industry, and a whole bunch of different um, kind of manufacturing subsectors that are relying on these different additive processes. And we're going to completely change that game and disrupt that industry. When did this, so 2002, the company started, um, when, uh, tell me more about your path leading up to that, because I'm interested into uh, kind of some of the decisions that made you want to start a, a company like Space Copy, because it's a fascinating one where we've, the fusion of 3D printing and space, like I, it's very excited to talk about this topic. Not many people are. So um, I, I'd love to know more about the why for Space Copy for you. Absolutely. So yeah, started in late 2022. And um, inspiration first for me personally, um, came from a prototype design that I had come up with for a Mars colony that was created using 3D printing. Wow. Uh, back then, that was back in 2017. I didn't know the first thing about how 3D printing really, really operates. I understood the concept of different processes, but never really how it works. Yeah. 
I did kind of like a research project. It was for my school. Um, got to create this amazing prototype. It took a lot of time, a lot of effort, but throughout the entire iterative design process and actually creating something like that, it was so, so rewarding. I had the chance to really work with different CAD models and experiment with different kinds of 3D printing and see what was what. And that thought and that feeling never really left me. Mm. It was around 2019 that I got um, an offer to work for NASA as a contractor for their subdivision called uh, NSPIRES, which is short for NASA Solicitation and Proposal Integrated Review and Evaluation System. Yeah, long name, lots <laughs> of stuff to unpack there. Um, if I'm putting it into simple words, that's basically the NASA division that's responsible for view, uh, reviewing all the proposals mm. that are from, say, academic institutes. If there's a university working on a research project for space, it's being filtered through Inspires. Mm. And then reviewers and panelists, such as myself, go in, take a look at the review proposal, find out its intrinsic merit, its relevance to the overarching goals of NASA and projects like Artemis, and see if integration strategy for something like Eclipse mission. And if we find that all of those criterion are checked off, then those are the proposals that get funding. And eventually that's what you start hearing about in mainstream media. Interesting. So, so this is kind of the, you know, when we wonder where a mission comes from uh, today, this is a lot of where this comes from, at least, is it just academic and then it's built from there or other private institutions that are offering um, things that can be bid for in those projects? Well, absolutely. Private mm. institutions are a huge part of it. I'd say they probably make up around 50% of the applications that we review. Wow. And it's, it's great to see, too, because there's a great integration between government, industry, and academia, which are like the three key stakeholders. Mm. And it's also nice to see that some of the small businesses are starting to get some recognition on these platforms uh, whether they're working with the larger entities or submitting something entirely on their own, it's mm. good to see. So, uh, how does how does someone apply to something like this? Whether you know, in in any of those three groups, is it the process the same? Uh, process is relatively similar, but mm. slightly different on the bureaucracy side of each. Okay. Um, if you're looking to submit a project to NASA to have them take a look at it. Um, I always recommend, especially if you're a student or early career professional, if you have the chance to go to a university and work with them on a project, then do it. It's your easiest way in. Mm -hmm. But if you're an entrepreneur like me, then you're going to want to found your own space company or work with a space company to bid on a larger proposal. And they have all mm -hmm. different kinds of criteria and different subsections and divisions that are dedicated to different programs. So there's a really diverse range of things. And that's not limited to planetary science, heliophysics, astrophysics, those three divisions I've worked in. Uh, biomedical engineering is another one. Um, physical science, biological science, anything in between that relates to space or Earth, you can count on it being there. That is very cool. Um, you mentioned uh, entrepreneurship, and I, uh, on this podcast, for especially for this segment, I think we've we have a good balance of folks that are in a scientific and entrepreneurial field. Um, how, how have you seen that be different than say some of the people that you work with in the industry? Cause it, it seems like it's, I don't want to say a rare thing, but it's unique at the very least. Um, is that something that you uh, grew up with that's always been there or did, did you find that later? Uh, entrepreneurship has always been very deeply embedded within my family. We're all 
all entrepreneurs. A lot of us are. Oh, cool. And yeah, no, entrepreneurship is definitely one of my core values. But um, when you take a look at the space industry and how entrepreneurship fits into that framework, I'd say it's pretty diverse. It's its own breed in itself. When you mm -hmm. compare it to how other people do business, if you're a government entity, it's an entirely different landscape. And I myself have been on quite the journey since founding Space Copy, really taking a deep dive into what entrepreneurship is as a sector in itself, and then refining it down to that niche of hardware development for space tech, because again, space tech as an industry is pretty large itself, but then you narrow it down to hardware, you narrow it down to additive manufacturing, and all of a sudden it's this completely customized niche sector of entrepreneurship that not a lot of people know about, but in my opinion, it's one of the most interesting things to be part of. Yeah, tell, tell me some of the, the interesting things that you've learned uh, along the way or, or something that kind of just pops out as as one of the most interesting things that you've you've seen so far. I have to pick one. <laughs> you could do more. <laughs> we can pick a few. Um, let's start with the mum test, which is a book that was um, given to me on maybe the first or second day of um, a program because we were in a program with Techstars, which is a renowned worldwide venture capital firm for early stage startups. So we went through about a three month program with them and we met some really great advisors, people who are in the space industry who are also entrepreneurs. Mm. One of them, his first advice to me was sit down and read the mum test book. And that book basically talks a lot about how you can convey your messages and how you can learn to respond to people and engage with people if they're partners, if they're people you want to work with, if they're clients, in mm. order to convey your message in a way that's both effective and cuts through all of the red tape. Mm. Because and I find this a lot in the space industry. There is a lot of red tape when it comes to negotiating and making deals. So if you can find a way to capture your value proposition and find a method of communicating to stakeholders in a way that cuts through some of that preamble, mm. you're going to have a quicker go-to-market, a quicker revenue strategy, and overall better business practices. So mm. that was one of my favorite things to learn. Love that. All right, folks. If you're ever wondering where that little bit of extra energy comes from, that craziness that allows me to uh, put out episodes on almost a weekly basis here and content across social media and, and YouTube to uh, get more people into science and to have different space content out there, a lot of that is from finding good ways to get into focus. We don't. We all don't have as much time as we all would want to do the things that we want to do. The reality is... You have to be really efficient with your time. And so that means when you're being creative and doing things like this, whatever it is, if, if you're a master of cultivating that creative energy, you know you've tried pretty much everything. Right now, Magic Mind is my big ticket for optimizing those times that I have to work on stuff. So like I was saying, you want to be able to just jump right in. If I have an hour, you don't want to spend 30 minutes getting ready for that hour and then you only have 30 minutes left. You haven't even started yet. You want to be able to jump in and get things going. Magic Mind, the productivity shot. It's this little quick energy boost and it's not like those energy drink or hyper caffeine drinks. It's not this huge rush, although some days it does, it does kind of feel like that. It's only 55 milligrams of caffeine, but it's this blend of other essential things for mind, productivity, anxiety, stress reduction. It's this little magic 
bottle that you can check out the science, magicmind.com slash science, see all the things that are in there. For me, it has helped replace what was a six cup of coffee average day for me to just keep things going. I need a stimulant of some kind to, to, to keep things moving, especially with how much I'm doing. It's just how my brain works. Uh, Magic Mind has helped bring that down to some days, two cups of coffee, but, you know, basically cut that in half. So magicmind.com. Inside, you've got matcha, bacopa monieri, ashwagandha, rhodiola rosera, lion's mane mushrooms, and cordyceps mushrooms. You, I, I have it in the fridge all the time. If you get it like a little slushy and shake it around, uh, that is like the best. That just goes down super sweet. Uh, go to magicmind.com. You can get 20% off your first single purchase or up to 56% off if you do the first subscription. Like I was saying, I'm on the 30-day right now. Use the unique code today in space 20 and help support this podcast, but also join me in this kind of search for cleaner energy, cleaner productivity. Check it out, magicmind.com. Use the code today in space 20, 20% off or 56% off the subscription. Thank you, Magic Mind, for being a sponsor and for helping us take more advantage of those moments of creativity uh, in that time that we have during the day or on the weekends to start working on things that we love. And that's it, folks. Let's get back to the show. I'm trying to think. What's another really interesting thing? I like to say that uh, actually starting a business Hmm. was more knowledgeable than going to business school. Oh, yes. You're on the ground, you're running, you're always moving, because if you're not moving, you're not a startup. Hmm. You're always looking to learn new things. If you're refining your pitch deck for the 50th time at three in the morning, the night before a big presentation, so be it. That's the startup world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of really great knowledge that I've learned comes from understanding the startup culture and how it behaves, not just in space tech, but just entrepreneurship in general. I think people have this misconception that you have to be on like a constant grind and you have to always be pushing and pushing and that can really set some toxic boundaries and you really don't understand when's a good time for you to take a step back, breathe, look at the greater mission of what you're doing and what you can actually continue following along your path instead of just meeting the next deadline. So I'd say one of the things that I learned through entrepreneurship is it's an uphill battle constantly but you have to be content with the fact that there's always going to be something that has to get done. You're never going to check off everything that's on your list and you have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with adding more things onto that list. And Mm. actually, if you just keep doing that and you keep trekking forward and you set that healthy boundary for yourself saying, okay, this is what I can get accomplished in a day. This is what I'll get done tomorrow. And you can maintain that kind of level headedness. Then I'd say any kind of conflict that would come up, day-to-day in a business, you'd be able to mitigate it pretty good if you keep that mindset. I absolutely love that. I'm so glad that you you brought that up. It's For for us, it's something that we're definitely working on here. We, we talk a lot about the human side, so I'm so glad that you brought that up. Right now, I'm, I'm in a few phases of this because, you know, this podcast is pretty much just me. Um, filming, recording, ideating, uh, editing, um, and a lot of that was from starting my 3D printing business early on and, and providing a service for folks. And then that shifted me into the, you know, the startup 3D printing world because 
for some reason, I was in the middle of the 3D printing hub of the world in Boston, Massachusetts. Who knew? Um, but <laughs> uh, the reason I got in those places from was from learning those lessons from from having a business and realizing, you know, you're going to have to pack up the package. You're going to have to learn about shipping. You're going to have to learn about all these little things, not because necessarily they're interesting, but because they're going to help you accomplish the task. And so it's kind of an interesting uh, big picture view of something. And then being the operator, you just have a better respect, I think, for everything that has to happen. Um, so where are some healthy boundaries that you've um, set in your kind of tenure or your experience now as an entrepreneur? I'd be interested to hear. And I'll share one to give you a few seconds to think. Um, I am answering the why a lot more often than reaching for some arbitrary goal. And I think for me, the why is the thing that ultimately like gives me that drive to keep that engine moving. And it's a, it's a much healthier fuel other than, you know, say, Oh, I didn't get that job. I'll show them. That's not a, not a very healthy fuel. Um, but something I'm still working on, but it, it was a big lesson for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I can see a lot of parallels to that as well for me. Um, I'll take kind of some advice that I got um, from one of our advisors and also from a program that we were in with uh, MIT a little bit earlier last year. Um, something that kept being repeated to us as we were going through the program was when you approach people, you have to stop approaching them with an open hand asking for something. Mm. Most people, if you're in the startup world, you're looking to raise capital, you're looking to gain partnerships, you want something from somebody. And that prerogative is never going to change. That's why we're here. But it's a matter of how you approach it mm. and how you address other people's challenges and concerns. Because that's that's how you build client relationships, too, is understanding your customers' concerns. So one of the boundaries that I learned was to stop asking people, how can you help me? Mm. And start asking, how can I help you? And I found that by asking for advice instead of asking for capital, in exchange, you get more value and knowledge as a result of the conversations that you have when you approach a person asking for their opinion, asking what kind of concerns they're having in their industry, and then going back and reflecting on how you can solve it as an individual and as an entrepreneur. Mm. Being able to probably loop that feedback mechanism into how I approach business and how I approach conversations with different stakeholders, I think that has been one of the better things that I learned in 2023. Mm, absolutely. And I, I, to tack on to that, I think so much of entrepreneurship and something that's maybe different than the academic endeavor of science, um, it, it's about building relationships. And, you know, I think the best, the best folk, I think the best result out of entrepreneurship is yes, business and yes, profit comes from it, but it's having a really good partnership between a business giving another business a service or partners working together, departments working together inside of a company, um, that that to me is is where it gets really good. It does. It does. And I'll, I'll border on to another story for a moment while we're on the subject. Sure. Um, this Space Copy, founding Space Copy, has given me such great insight into space tech entrepreneurship. And um, more recently in 2023, I had the opportunity to co-found another startup endeavor. It's called Moon Trades. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a new trailblazer project that I'm proudly contributing to. So um, embarked on this startup alongside a handful of incredible co-founders and uh, all have pretty varied experience in it's technical, business, legal backgrounds, all with this goal of developing two technologies. First of all, we wanted to focus on STEM education. And for that in particular, we're looking to leverage uh, AI and filter it back into an education platform that teaches youth uh, students, whether it's secondary, post-secondary, or even career professionals about space and earth science with a special emphasis on lunar mining and tunneling. And I will segue into that in a moment, but um, to talk about STEM education for a second, creating interactive learning experiences for students in particular and for people who are just getting out there into the field, it's a great opportunity to boost your soft skills. And I like to recommend this because this is something that I did as an early career professional was to go around to different entities and just take short bursts of education, enroll in a program. If it's a few weeks or a few months, get a certificate in a certain discipline because it gives you a well-rounded knowledge in many different fields and really helps you discover what you're passionate about. Yes. And at Moon Trades, we're passionate about educating other people and sharing that thought put and really unleashing that creative side to people and doing that through AI and having the opportunity to collaborate with some really interesting people has been uh, really rewarding for us. So we're looking forward to launching the platform later this year. And um, I'll, thank you. I'll, I'll segue back now into lunar mining and tunneling, which I hinted at. Mm -hmm. The second part of Moon Trades' technology is we're gonna reinvest the capital that we get from the STEM education platform and we're going to develop an autonomous mining and tunneling robotic system that can be used both on Earth and in space. Mm -hmm. So resource excavation, mining and tunneling operations to create sustainable habitats and identify those habitable zones on the moon. And what's cool about that is we're going to take the same AI platform that mm -hmm. we're integrating with the education and we're going to integrate it onto the rover systems that we're developing. Interesting. So I'd like to suffice it to say, really interesting stuff that I've learned on the entrepreneurship front. I think I'm taking a lot of knowledge from Space Copy, putting it forward into Moon Trades, and really seeing how these two things develop. This is all super exciting stuff. Like I, I don't even know where to start. Um, I think the problem of infrastructure for this boom in space that we're having, we're so blessed to have it. We didn't have it for a decade. And... Yeah to see so many people like yourself and hearing that you're working with so many other people take advantage of this time make, brings me a lot of joy. Um, where do you see, so space copy right now um, with infrastructure, how do you think that space copy, I mean, it sounds like having just machinery to deal with the idea of regolith, because if you're going to print with regolith, you're going to need to process regolith. Yeah. So having all these machines that are seemingly working together and building on top of each other. Um, and it, it sounds like this AI is also going to become more and more trained. All the data is kind of training it to get better and better over time. Um, where are you guys today? Cause this is all very exciting. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, when people say, where are you today? That answer changes week by week. <laughs> Uh, we're in R&D right now, so we're just in the early stages. We're working with a lot of academic partners, leveraging their laboratory equipment. So um, we 
we're using selective laser melting as the 3D printing process that we're looking at. Mm. So we're taking their selective laser melting printers. We're shipping in regolith simulants from various different vendors that have probably around a 99% accuracy to what you'd find on the lunar surface. Mm. Uh, various different compositions, mares, highlands, all the different kind of chemical variations that you would find in regolith. And we're taking that, we're processing it, because you're right, you do have to do the processing. So we do a pre-processing method where we're crushing, mixing, and sieving up the particles to try and make them a bit more uniform and easier to handle in 3D printing. Mm. Then we're running it through the additive system. Right now we're keeping our geometries pretty simple, but we hope to dive into a bit more complexity in our future testing. And then after that, we will plan to conduct mechanical testing on the parts to see how well they fare, compressive strength, tensile, all that stuff. Mm. And we are excited to be embarking on a lunar analog test later in 2024 to test how durable the parts hold up when exposed to a lunar environment. That's Are you guys putting it into like a vacuum chamber and and putting it under vacuum and experiencing like an environment or... Very, very similar. It's oh, cool. um, vacuum with micrometeorite impact. Oh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> it is. It is. It's very interesting stuff. It's actually not something that's really been done before. So we're very privileged to be kind of like the first industry company mm -hmm. that's coming in and providing these 3D printed parts to be tested in a micrometeorite chamber. So that's something that's not really been done. So we're proud of that. That's great. That's wild. Um, so... That's very cool. Where I guess I'm not sure how much you can share about the the technology behind it, uh, but I'm always interested. I know there I've seen you know DMLS technology where you've got uh, a bed and then metal powder and then you're kind of printing onto this sheet metal at the bottom and then you take it off, machine it off. There's others where you're loading in powder layer by layer and kind of you know melting locally wherever it is. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about how, how that's working today and where you guys want it to get to for, say, we're on the moon and this is how we're going to print? Absolutely, absolutely. I'll keep things pretty high level, obviously, mm -hmm. but we basically break down our technology for space copy into four steps. Mm -hmm. First, we do a spectral analysis of the chemical composition of the regolith. So basically, we take a spectroscopy device we scan it with lasers, we determine what the material we're working with is consisting of. And that allows us to move into step two, which is pre-processing, as I kind of explained the crushing mixing part, um, working with the particles of regolith, reducing them down, filtering out any kind of um, materials that we can actually eliminate that might be harmful to the printing process. Because, um, and I don't know if you're familiar, sometimes when you're melting down things like regolith, you're actually uh, producing oxides as a result of that reaction. And what you can do is you can take those oxides, you can capture it, you can put it through a hydrogen reduction process, and you can actually create oxygen as a byproduct from 3D printing. I'm so glad that you're looking at that now. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so we're trying to capture all these different iterative processes because it's not just a 3D printer. It's a lunar manufacturing device, a testing yeah. and research lab all in one. So That's phase two. Phase three, of course, is then moving into that sintering melting process. So as I mentioned, SLM is our primary focus. We've looked at doing extrusion before, and that's honestly not out of the woods yet, but I think that would be more suited for earth-based applications. Mm. And then final process is the entire software system, because it's 
pretty well integrated with the different modular parts there. Uh, we're integrating AI operating software that uses an algorithm to take data from the spectroscopy, the pre-processing, and the 3D printing to create a combined report of what worked and what didn't work throughout all the different design phases. So that will help you improve for future missions and future operations. And also, it will give you the ability to hopefully understand a bit more about the printing parameters so that you can create more complex geometries as time goes on. That is very cool. That is very cool. I mean, for me, for someone that's been looking into this strange niche, um, which is awesome, uh, it, it what you guys are addressing is so much of the what hasn't been explained. Everyone's so excited about, get, you know, 3D printing Martian dust and and regolith and and you know, using caves. But I guess in in a, in a different way of saying it, you guys are looking at a plot of land, analyzing the material that's there. You're able to process it and then print it and analyze as things are going on. So you'll take something on Earth, you guys can train here on Earth like we would with other missions, bring it to the moon, and the AI will take what it knows and learn more while it's there. So every time you guys do this, it's going to grow smarter and smarter every single time. Exactly. That's basically the core principle. And it comes back a lot to the mission behind why I chose to found this company. I have to tell you, at the end of the day, it really just comes down to having innate passion for the mm -hmm. industry not just for space, but for 3D printing itself. I've personally been really interested in 3D printing for several years. And I even heard rumblings from NASA yet over six years ago that they were looking to develop additive manufacturing tech that meets the criteria of reducing supply transportation from Earth to space. Because that's, that's the main use case here. Yeah. Transportation of supplies and infrastructure from Earth to the moon is astronomical. Like you're looking at a starting price of five million US dollars for every one U of payload. Now that, that's astronomical. That's going to pile up so fast. And by the way, there's absolutely zero guarantee that that supplies is going to make it there safely. If something happens with that rocket launch and you're depending, you've got human lives up there on the moon that are depending on that payload. You can't afford to mess around with that. Mm -hmm. So transforming human exploration methods is our mission statement. Mm -hmm. And I think it deeply resonates with myself and even so many founders in space tech that at the end of the day, we are here to be inspired and push the boundaries of science far beyond what we were previously capable of. And that's a lot of what's behind NASA and the other space agencies, Canadian Space Agency, European Space Agency. They serve as a beacon of light in solving some of these challenges and more or less space copies ability to contribute to the merit of the science community for this specific sector, apart from the business aspect itself, is extremely rewarding to know that you're making a difference on how humanity views additive manufacturing, how we view lunar colonization, and even how we look at creating supplies and infrastructure in remote environments on Earth. I want to draw an example here. Say if you're in a natural disaster and you're coming to a wreckage zone, you're needing to rebuild a city, wouldn't it be so much easier if you could build the bricks with a 3D printer on site using soil? So much easier than actually shipping in containers and trucks full of building material. When you could additively manufacture a good majority of it, why not? Yeah, and we're seeing, you know, right now just on Earth, we're seeing those concrete uh, 3D printing machines that are building houses right now. Um, early stages, but... Uh, 
3D printing as a, you know, for me, it was getting into the field of 3D printing was through uh, application engineering. And I realized in my 3D printing service business, I was essentially doing exactly that. So I was doing a role that I, I wasn't even aware of. But for me, I think now I've been 3D printing, let's see, is at least six years as a as a career uh, in the industry, and then another so let's say eight years total um, of of just being hands on with it. For me, it's about the application. It's about helping somebody. They have a part, and that very unique. Uh, there's not a lot of us out there, but people that can look at a printed part and analyze it just by looking at it and asking some questions. What might have gone wrong? Um, you know, part defect troubleshooting and just knowing a machine intimately enough, watching enough patterns that you can say, I think this is what happened to it and then start troubleshooting. I mean, that's, that's my day job at this point, uh, is, is helping people with just that. Uh, and so to think about a future where that kind of skill is going to be helpful in building stuff in orbit or on another planet, uh, is just a future that I really hope exists so um it does exist, it does exist yeah. and it's clear and it's a right around the corner people think it's 10 years out it's not mm. so, uh so let's see uh from tell me more about some of your earliest memories of what got you into science and entrepreneurship are there is there an early memory that kind of sticks that solidified it um obviously you talked about your you know when you started 3d printing that that really you got hooked. Um, anything else younger, uh, you know, as you were going through school? Yeah, absolutely. Even from elementary school, I remember doing uh, projects about uh, the solar system and the different uh, chemical compositions of the planets. Mm. And I remember just being utterly fascinated by how the different planets work, how their orbits work, how it's, you know, such different day and night cycles. And, um, I remember just being so fully engrossed in science in general. And um, even before I knew what engineering was, I was interested in things like electrolysis and just processes that I didn't even fully understand were interconnected, but I found that I just found them to be so interesting. So I'll backtrack a little bit here. Before I became a space entrepreneur, I did start as a contract reviewer for NASA and how I got onto that path was through an amazing entity called the Science Art Exchange. So that is run by a former head of NASA's Johnson Space Center, and they are a non-for-profit, and their goal is to connect youth of all different ages, from as young as five years old, all the way up to adults, with the STEM industry, and combine it with art. So if you've heard the term STEAM being kind of commonly adopted as opposed to STEM, so, so uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics is kind of the new era of how people look to approach the space industry. And that's kind of the core principle of the Science Art Exchange. So they were hosting a competition about uh, 3D printing on Mars, which is where my kind of school project for 3D printing really kind of came into action. So I submitted that to them. I got great feedback on it. People were interested. They said, you know, you should pursue something like this. I mm. uh, followed up again the, the next year with the uh, Humans and Humans and Space Youth Art Competition and uh, prized honorable mention for that. And just getting a little bit of recognition and having the chance to sit down with some subject matter experts who are coming directly from NASA mm. was kind of my first opportunity to engage 
with the science community on a serious scale. And then from that point, it really, really just snowballed. And um, when I was offered to go take a contract position with NASA, after having submitted kind of all my work to them and them saying, well, it's that's really interesting stuff, but we're working on other things. So thanks for submitting and have a nice day. Mm. They eventually came back and said, well, do you want to do some review work for us as a contractor? And uh, I got to learn a lot during my tenure in the various divisions. Um, mentioned planetary science. That's my favorite out of anything that I've worked with. Yeah. Specifically, the development and advancement of lunar instruments. Um, I got to see kind of firsthand how different private companies and research institutes were building um, things like uh, LIDAR, so light detection and ranging systems, mm. to integrate onto a payload for a rover, for example, that's going to be used to do sample analysis and um, excavation reconnaissance kind of around the lunar habitable zones. And really getting to see that stuff up front and looking at um, you know what needs to be done for testing, analysis, or practical applications in situ. That's kind of the over-encompassing terms that focus a lot on scientific measurement and tying together some of the challenges of living in space and developing instruments that will solve challenges. Um, I've seen some pretty interesting things like um, rovers, orbital scanners, mm. and even miniature measuring devices, which are, you know, good for clips and Artemis missions. And mm. the job itself is very straightforward. You know, getting to see kind of what's being done, taking a good hard look at the criteria of does it match what NASA is trying to accomplish. Mm. I just say kind of like all of those different things leading up to that NASA position and then even afterwards getting to engage with different stakeholders and getting to know people, senior mm. people have been in the industry for 40 years, people I look up to as advisors and mentors, those people really inspired me to just take it to the next level and really pursue entrepreneurship. And I have to tell you, since pursuing that entrepreneurship path, I have become so well-versed in many different subjects of space that even just as a hobbyist, I didn't fully kind of comprehend mm. some of those technical terms. And now I kind of consider myself to be an expert in a couple of different things. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, getting the chance to split time between two aerospace startups and getting to engage with NASA and engage with the science community. And there's a great science community here in Canada as well. Mm. Um, they're really focused on robotics too. So it's interesting stuff, which robotics, of course, it ties into so many different verticals and subsectors of space development. Yeah. And um, I got to meet some really great people. And I have to say, I love one other thing about the industry is that it's a tight knit community. Yes. And most people know most people mm. and everybody is usually super involved in paying things forward. They like collaboration because, you know, everybody would rather get a small piece of the pie than no pie at all. Yes. And easier to work together in consortiums and groups as opposed to individually. Mm. So I think that it's almost like being part of a tribe, this community of space where there's all these different people coming from so many different backgrounds and geographies, and everybody has this super unique outlook on how they approach space tech. And I feel privileged to be a stakeholder in this great, amazing space race and having the opportunity to collaborate and communicate with some really, really cool people. Absolutely. And it's something that I'm so blessed for this segment is to be able to talk to folks like yourself and throughout the industry. For me, you know, my early story is trying to find my way into the industry. And then I actually ended up finding 
I think my favorite thing, which is talking to people in the industry and sharing that uh, out outside to the world. And um, it's been a very interesting journey. And I, I, as we look at Artemis now slated for uh, Artemis 2 2025 uh, at the moment and um, Artemis 3 after that, there's a lot of things that need to, to happen for us to get there. But, uh, you know, at this point, there's no reason to rush anything. Um, the moon clearly is not the easiest thing uh, to to get to in the first place, even though we've done it before. And and we just saw with the Astrobotics lander, the Peregrine lander, um, the challenges that it's experiencing. And so I guess, what are your thoughts as we move forward with challenging the moon and trying to get back there? And, and, and to your point, to become regular, you know, if we're going to go to Mars, if we're going to go to the moon, these supplies need to be shipped on a regular basis and so it's not just we need to land on the moon it's we need to build a a ship a shipping route uh you know an entire supply chain launching from earth to wherever it is that we're going um i guess what are your thoughts on where we are in that journey of making that big and, and 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 go as big as you think you know i think your your unique perspective of what space copy wants to do on the moon is really interesting. Um, what are some things in the industry at a, at a big level that you are interested in, think we need to work on maybe things people haven't even discussed yet. I'd love to know your thoughts. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the logistics of the greater value chain of how to get to space and stay there needs a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say, you know, of course, we're making such great strides as a global space community, whether it's the private companies. I'm so glad you mentioned Astrobotic. Yeah, I watched their Peregrine One mission launch the other day. And I think it takes great stride for private companies in particular to really build, test and launch commercial space missions. Yeah, It serves as this foundation to many other kind of small businesses to demonstrate that you can go into this industry and create something so magnanimous without actually having to be a billionaire. Yeah. Um, honestly, as far as further development goes, I would love to see a greater emphasis on dividing funding from large space industries and entities. Mm. Like take, take large space agencies like European Space Agency or NASA. They've got so much capital and so many great resources. I'd love to see a more even distribution amongst the small businesses. Yeah. And that would be something for sure that I'd be thrilled to see. I think... There's a lot of different processes for how we approach lunar colonization. I think narrowing it down to a set of criteria would be really helpful. Mm. Um, Another thing that comes to mind for me is um, how we look at uh, ITAR and international regulations on how we send space. Because there's one thing is to build the rocket and another thing is to actually get it sent out there. Yeah. um, something that I've learned because um, I volunteer for the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Use of Outer Space. Mm. Um, I'm involved with what's called uh, GEGSLA, the Global Expert Group on Sustainable Lunar Activities. And we're going through and we're reading the Artemis Accords. We're reading the Moon Agreement and we're seeing all of these different overlaps. Um, so the Artemis Accords and and uh, the Lunar Treaty, can you give folks who maybe aren't completely familiar with that just a little brief uh, intro to that? Absolutely. So um, I like to think of a couple of key ones. First is the Artemis Accords. 
Then comes the Outer Space Treaty, then comes the Moon Agreement and everything thereafter, Rescue Agreement, all that stuff. Mm. There's probably four or five documents that are generally adopted by the United Nations as kind of like a global framework for sustainable lunar development activities. And what those outline is how do government industries interact with private industry? What kind of regulations do we set up for how to use space resources? What kind of laws do we have on the moon? Uh, first of all, the principal thing being nobody owns the moon. Nobody owns the space. It's so important for us to maintain that peaceful use on space, the resources and the technology that's developed because it's a collaborative mission at heart. And um, just being able to be a part of that influencing foreign policy and getting to kind of see stuff happening in live time. It's absolutely incredible. And what I love to do is volunteer work. And I do that a lot in the space industry, especially places like the United Nations, because of course they're at the front running of so many different variations of how people approach space tech. Mm. But um, doing a lot of volunteering and mentorship and I, I encourage anybody who's in the STEM industry who wants to expand their reach a little bit to go to, you know, outreach programs and attend industry events, webinars, and look for volunteering opportunities for committees and consortiums. Sometimes NASA puts out those open calls. Mm. Um, another interesting place, um, Zooniverse.org is mm. a platform that you can go to and they offer all of these various different kinds, and this ranges from biology to space sciences to humanities. If you want to volunteer your time classifying documents or identifying, for example, I've done like gamma ray bursts in the universe and they take like imagery. Uh, I was doing um, James Webb Space Telescope imagery of, um, I believe it was neutron stars. Um, what they do is they take infrared images of the galaxy and it's up to us individual volunteer reviewers to sit there and classify information and identify any kind of anomalies. Mm. And that research work is sent back to NASA. They process it through an AI algorithm, and then they actually extract those results and that data, and they put it into articles and publications that further get published into books. And I was doing that for a little while. Yeah, I was doing that for a bit. I still do it every once in a while. Mm. And um, through doing that enough times, not only did I gain a lot of knowledge, but it actually opened some doors of opportunity for me. Like I mentioned, volunteering with the United Nations, it all came from doing other volunteer work with National Science Foundation. And most recently, I'm super proud to say that I'm a contributing author to a book that's about artificial intelligence for Earth resource management. It was commissioned by the White House. It's being released in the next few weeks. Um, it was it was a wonderful experience, first of all, to be able to write about something like that and to yeah. gain in AI, which is something that I consider myself to be a bit novel in. Mm. But I'd say a lot of credit comes to doing those volunteer work, mm. all these different reviews and committees and panels. If you're out there just actively engaging in the industry, you're going to open yourself up to opportunities. And it, in my experience, has been a wonderful thing. Wow, that's incredible. I'm I hope that is that released? Is that getting released soon? Getting released soon. Very cool. I'm looking forward to reading that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'll be keeping it on social media. So if you guys are following Space Copy or me, Madison Fian, definitely check it out. Fantastic. So uh let, let me ask a little bit about AI because uh, you know, in 2023, we started the year, at least on this podcast, our hope was 
the reason this podcast, part of the reason this podcast exists is because we don't want science to become magic. Once it becomes magic, then nobody learns anything. Nobody understands what's actually happening. Um, so with AI in 2023, it, it hit the scene pretty hard. And so we started getting a little bit involved to just try and understand it. Used ChatGPT a little bit. I currently, for the podcast, we use a transcription and editing software to get the clips out. And we also use like a transcription software um, to help me do a lot of the work that would have taken me uh, extreme amounts of time. So what we found was that in our use case of AI, it was helping us to spend more time on the creative endeavors and thinking about how to make this podcast better than taking some of the time that we just aren't at the place where we could pay someone to do that. Um, but also just to free up, you know, I'm a working engineer by day, so there's not a lot of time and I'd rather spend the time, uh, focusing on the why of the mission instead of the what and the how, how for you, how would you describe to somebody who's brand new to AI, what it is and, and the why of why you should learn about it and use it? AI has been absolutely an, an a roller coaster for me in particular, getting to understand how it works. Um, I was not prepared when ChatGPT launched. I remember logging onto it for the first time and going, yeah, okay, sure. This is this is interesting. Then I inputted a couple of functions and I hit return. And I went, oh wow. Yeah. That that's a thing now. Okay. So um my first experience with it was first of all understanding what is an algorithm, what is machine learning, what's deep learning, and how does that all integrate back into AI? And um, I've recently been introduced to a couple of different theories. Um, I'm looking into something called computer vision, which in high level is basically how computers identify items from imagery using algorithms. Interesting. Um, so that's really helpful in applications like data analysis, which of course ties back so heavily into the space industry. Mm. Um, if we're looking into the, you know, the why and how versus, you know, like why should you use AI versus how do you use it? Mm. The why, I, I say the use case is made for itself. You're saving time, you're reducing errors. Mm. Um, I say it, it never substitutes for the human eye, but it can really give you some assistance in cutting, di- cutting down on your total runtime on something that you're doing if you're working on a project. Yeah. Um, if it's something as drastic as creating code for a computer science program, or if it's something as simple as trying to estimate what kind of um, mechanical testing you should do on a printed coupon after doing some additive testing, then that's a great application for how you can use AI. And um, for Moon Trades, I'll flip the focus a little bit because Moon Trades education platform is going to be leveraging a lot of AI. Um, obviously, we're looking at things like um, Synthesia. So that's um, an online platform that integrates AI to create videos from text. So it will actually create like a digital avatar that will read to you and make like an interactive learning experience. Wow. That was something that we had looked into. We haven't confirmed that we're using that yet, but Mm. I personally thought that a technology like that was super interesting. Definitely. Also, one other thing that I wanted to mention, and this borders on AI, but it's um, digital twins Mm. is... A really interesting concept to me. So basically simulating how something's going to look and how it's going to behave using mm-hmm. AI. And what's really useful for that for lunar applications, especially, is when you're going into creating um, a really high cost and complex hardware system, mm-hmm. 
You can use AI, first of all, to simulate what the product is going to look like. And then you can put it in an analog environment and test it with virtual reality to kind of estimate how that machine is there. What happens if um, what happens if radiation comes and hits the machine? Is that going to decalibrate one of the sensor functions of the cameras? Um, what's going to happen if there's temperature gradient extremes? Instead of actually putting a rover into a deep freeze and operating it at, my, at minus 150 C, yeah. then we could actually use digital twins to simulate that and figure out, you know, how do you work things like fuselages and wiring and how do you do radiation hardening? Instead of actually learning these things the hard way, AI gives us the opportunity to troubleshoot before the problem actually gets here. So being able to leverage AI in that function as a space entrepreneur is definitely something that I'm really, really happy that we have that we didn't have five or 10 years ago. Mm. So props to everybody who's out there creating AI software because us space people really need it. <laughs> it and it, it seems like the inevitable for human spaceflight, especially long-term, it feels like the Star Trek model is what's going to come. Having a computer run a lot of the things, the a lot of the functions of the ship as you're traveling it, and your colony, whatever it might be, it feels like having that partner is going to be really, really important as, as we become more regular of living in space and working in space. Absolutely, absolutely. The way that technology is being integrated into how we function in space is really going to be the core of what shapes the Artemis generation. And we are the living mm. Artemis generation. We get to be the ones who make that decision. And we get to watch it happening in lifetime. Mm. Um, if I'm looking at how technology is being integrated onto future payloads, I'm particularly really excited for some of the upcoming launches in 2024 and mm. 2025, 2026, um, I'm really excited to see how they look to integrate AI into operating softwares or how they look at taking data that they analyze during in-situ missions and bringing that data back to Earth and using AI to process it. Mm. Like take, for example, um, I know one of the big buzzword launches that's going around right now is Viper's search for water on the moon. Yes. So, um, to my understanding, they're going to be using a whole bunch of different um, LIDAR and spectroscopic instruments to determine where's the best spots for water ice deposition. And that data, of course, it's going to be you know, analyzed by some of the best scientists in the world, but also to have that opportunity to put it through an algorithm and see how that functions and if it's accurate. That's mm -hmm. going to be, I think, a building block towards lunar colonization, because if we have computer systems that are at least somewhat reliable, mm -hmm. then you're limiting the amount of human error that goes into building technology and shipping it to the moon. Yeah, it, it, it's a brave new world of how these things integrate. And kind of going back to the infrastructure thing, it feels like the space industry is at a really interesting place at infrastructure because it really hasn't grown much since we went to the moon with the Apollo era. Um, I'm oversimplifying it, obviously, but we saw with uh, Artemis 1, there was, I believe, an overload of the deep space network because those CubeSats were just sending too much data for its process, if I have that story um, correct. So it feels like there's this opportunity, you know, we talked with um, with our other uh, friends like Jordan Noon, um, venture capital trying to combine uh, 
and Jenna Bryant, the the private with the military side, because there just there hasn't been this integration on the military side for all these private uh, technologies, and obviously making sure that it's safe, secure, uh, and effective. Um, are there some things just thinking about AI that you think, aside from data uh, analysis and and helping cut through the stuff that comes back? Is there some place that you could think of that AI would be useful in the next five years, especially Artemis, right? It's Artemis two and three. If you had the choice of implementing an, an AI system uh, for that, for the infrastructure or something else around the mission, what do you? What would you choose? Oh, that's a tough one <laughs> uh, for Artemis. And I say this as a proud Canadian who knows that one of our astronauts is going to be aboard a future crewed mission and hopefully one day operating our 3D printers in space. Yeah. I'm looking at AI in regards to infrastructure development on the moon specifically. Mm. Um, it trails back a lot to me for how we look to integrate AI into both space copy and moon trades technology. So I think that algorithms will become almost mainstream for how we identify where we're putting astronauts down. I know people were talking peak near Shackleton as being a good region because of the good constant daylight and not too many uh, differentiations in permanently shadowed regions and stuff like that. Mm. Um, when you're out in that terrain, though, you really don't fully understand what's out there. Mm. Oh, Chandrian 3 did a really good job of kind of giving us a sneak peek into what we're expecting with Artemis. Yeah. Being able to have, you know, fleets of different systems that are being launched and actually set down on the lunar surface to do that reconnaissance and really analyze the terrain before you start building. Because first of all, you need to be building in a stable zone, right? Mm. Um, if you're looking at creating infrastructure for roadways or launch pads, for example, you need to do a little bit of recon and make sure that the ground you're working on is solid and stable and it can handle the yep. pressures that are associated with landing a rocket. So I think AI is gonna kind of trickle back down into the value chain with logistics and infrastructure development in that function. First of all, being able to help us predict where we're going to build infrastructure in the first place, and then coming back into the iterative processes of additive manufacturing, demonstrating how exactly is additive manufacturing going to be accomplished in space using in-situ resources. I think AI can help us determine a lot of how we approach process parameters mm -hmm. and how we approach handling volatile materials like regolith. And of course, it's, it's nothing like what you see here on Earth. Even the simulants, as accurate as they are, it doesn't take into account things like um, electrostatic effects, mm. uh, different traces of volatiles. And yeah. I mean, stuff can be carcinogenic, and you do not want that stuff getting inside equipment or much less mm. human lungs. Mm -hmm. So looking for AI systems that's going to help us mitigate challenges and help us with the iterative processes of additive manufacturing to make sure that infrastructure development is smooth, clean, and easy to deal with. That's where I see AI going in space. I love that. And I think as someone who works with metal powders uh, in 3D printing, they are, I can't even imagine what they would be like to deal with, deal with in zero G. Um, they get everywhere with gravity. So, uh, and, and we know the early astronauts, they all got sick, even with basically perfectly sealed suits. They still got stuff in, it still got back in uh, the capsule when they were, you know, <laughs> trying to, to come back. So to think about how to deal with that 
along with charge and things that you normally don't deal with, um, I think AI is going to help us chunk through that data. Um, have you guys thought about, because I do see this uh, as someone in the industry for, it seems like uh, the best folks out there have people who are hands-on working intimately with the people designing and engineering uh, the devices. Uh, how much thought and resources have you gone into with space copy and, and thinking about integrating kind of the human behind the machine and having it trained side by side with the AI? Um, or is that a consideration you guys have taken already? Oh, absolutely. Um, our entire operating system, we're taking in the user-centric design aspect is what we like to call it. So right now, and this is a bit of experimentation on our part as well, because we don't know when exactly we're going to be launching to go to space. Like we hope to have the prototype with the selective laser melting that's done in 2028, and then hopefully something with FDM that's done even sooner. But we don't know when exactly that's heading to the moon. Now, let's say that we get the 3D printer to the moon before humans get there. Then we have to get that AI and autonomous function really ramped up and up to speed with the production requirements for additive. But then take a step back and look where we're going to be in aerospace 10 years from now. There are going to be humans on the moon. There are going to be 3D printers on the moon. And that's where you really have to take into simplicity of design. You don't want to go out there and build some really complex instrument that nobody knows how to use. And then what are you going to do? You're going to call up the operator and ask for a user manual when you're on the lunar surface. Uh, yep, 100%. You'll be calling them up and saying, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I think about user-centric design, and this is something that we're um, doing right now, because as I mentioned, we're heavily into research and development, and we've got a stellar engineering team with us right now where we're working out the technical parameters of the design. Mm. And we're thinking about um, a few main things. Um, of course, AI borders into this conversation naturally because the algorithms are going to be integrated into the operating software but also how does a user turn it on how does it clean itself is it going to be self-cleaning do you have to press buttons how do you check supply levels how do you check to make sure that you know your laser heat is calibrated and that there's a sufficient energy density and that the temperature gradient is even across the build plate i mean we could go on all of the things yeah But at the end of the day, as long as the design is user-centric, it's relatively easy to use. Like you take a standard 3D printer that you have here on Earth and see what you can do to make it not more complicated. (laughs) We're talking about integrating spectroscopy and pre-processing through beneficiation. And then having uh, selective laser melting all in one device. And obviously that's going to involve a lot more systems than a standard 3D printer. Mm. So taking a step back looking at the operating system, seeing what actually has to be done, and then going back and saying, what can we do to make this simpler? Mm. And I think that's going to be a big part of what raises our TRL level, is sitting down with some software engineers and working out the kind of finer mechanics of what exactly user-centric design looks like for us. Mm. I I love that. I, I think that's going to be hugely important for for you guys to succeed so i'm i'm really looking forward to what you guys do with that um yeah anything else that we haven't touched on i mean let's just say someone's interested and they they've heard what you're talking about and they would love to know if there's a 
spot on the team at Space Coffee? Is there a place for people to apply or or to reach out if they're interested? I always say to people, reach out to me directly. I'm pretty active on social media, with whether that be LinkedIn. Um, we have, of course, our company website, spacecopy.com is the official site. That's only us. Um, you, there's a contact form there at the bottom. We're doing uh, internship opportunities throughout summer of 2024. It's um, remote opportunities too. So that's good for people to get, get engaged no matter where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, so if you're on the engineering or even just the STEM side of things and you want to be a contributing part of our mission, then we're happy to talk with you as an intern. And then if you're looking at a larger, more collaborative scale, whether you're another business or whether you're with an affiliated research institute, we're always looking to embark on R&D projects with partners. So definitely encourage people to reach out, come and see what we're doing, keep up to date with us. We have monthly newsletters where we share some of our amazing progress and we're always, always at a different convention or event. Mm. I myself personally, I'm going to be taking a little trip down to Orlando, Florida at the end of mm. January to attend the 50th annual Spacecom Expo. Oh, cool. So we're looking at, I believe it's around 5,000 people coming down for that event. Awesome. Additive manufacturing is going to be, I think, one of the top six subjects that's going to be discussed there. Wow. There's going to be tons of NASA people, tons of Department of Defense people. So definitely reach out to our team if you want to become involved, because we are happy to have that conversation, whether you're joining our team or you want to sign a contract to become one of our clients. Amazing. Uh, one of the things that we talk about uh, when we close out this episode, I like every guest to share what is something that, uh, whether you could tell yourself as as a young person interested in space or science or STEM, STEAM, uh, or someone, some advice that you would give someone today who is either still in school and, and still studying or out of the industry and looking to get back in? What's some advice you would have for those folks? Wow. Oh, my gosh. So many things come to mind. Um, I want to say, first of all, don't ever lose your passion for what you're doing. Always stay up to date with the industry news. Do your research. Treat it like a hobby and it's never really work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, what I say to people, and I like to do some mentoring throughout my volunteer work, especially with the you know high school students and those who are just entering post-secondary, is to take a step back and look at the entire space industry, all of STEM, everything that's involved in science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics, and look at the different verticals and the different subsectors because there's so many different disciplines. Mm. And it doesn't even have to be, you don't have to be an engineer to get into space. You can go down the degree of business. You can go down the degree of getting um, uh, education in law and becoming uh, an aerospace lawyer. There's all these different it's kinds crazy. of un <laughs> yeah, unconventional methods for figuring out how you integrate into the space industry as a whole. And I think taking a step back, looking at the industry, seeing, first of all, where there's a gap, where we need more assistance in certain sectors, mm. then going back and finding what are your passions, what's interesting to you, and then looking for resources to help kind of shape that peripheral trajectory. Mm. For example, if you're super interested in heliophysics, then you're going to go and, you know, attend NASA workshop events that are talking about the study of the sun. Or say, for example, you're really interested on how lunar dust works. 
Um, if, you, if that's your niche, hey, go for it. Um, NASA's Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium is um, an organization that's created in partnership with John Hopkins University. Mm. And uh, they host monthly webinars. It's free for anybody to sign up and be a part of that consortium. And you get to hear from industry experts, um, people who are just, um, people who are still in undergraduate school, all the way to people who have served 40 years of civil service. And um, you get to hear about so many people's different stories, inventions that they're working on. There's community outreach and uh, job networking opportunities that come from these kind of events. So definitely, if you're interested in space, narrow it down a little bit to find one or two things you're really passionate about, and then go out there and do your research. And if you can, attend some events online or in person if there's something happening in your area. That's a really great way to break into the industry. And you usually find your niche along that road. Mm. I love that. Madison, I, you are once again adding to our, our theory here and people of science. And, and really something that I learned accidentally by starting this podcast that the, it seems that the road less traveled or the unique path, whatever you want to call it, uh, is very fruitful. I mean, hearing your experience starting the out route, the art route, and I mean, that gave you all the experience that you really needed for space tech entrepreneurship. I mean, it's it's not intuitive initially that that is the way to go, but it does seem like, um, I mean, you're an, you're an example of it, uh, that that is the way to go with this. Um, so thank you for so much for sharing your your story here discussing space copy um is there anything else you'd like to chat uh, chat about before we before we head out um i'd honestly like to just kind of conclude by saying you're right about the road less traveled being more fruitful and in space copy's case the road hasn't even been built yet we're 3d printing it yeah i love that i love that <laughs> so um i just say as any advice to anybody who's interested in space who's interested in science don't ever stop pursuing your goals and if you're interested in entrepreneurship, it's the biggest challenge that you're ever going to embark on, but it's also the most rewarding. So if you're thinking about going down that road and you have a good idea and a solid value proposition, do it. Go head first, go full force, and don't ever stop believing in your dream no matter what. Madison Fian, thank you so much for being a guest on People of Science. It's a pleasure having you. Pleasure to be here, Alex. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, spread love and spread science. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Today in Space. Be well. See you next time.